Good morning, everyone. Welcome. I'm glad to see you here today. It's a beautiful day uh, that God has given to us, and I'm glad that you are sharing this day with us today as we worship the Lord. We welcome our guests especially. You're very important to us. We're glad that you're here and hope that you'll feel very much a part of our family as we worship God together. Uh, we have uh, uh, several announcements, a lot of announcements to, to take care of this morning. Uh, first of all, I'd like to remind everyone of our attendance sheets on each row. Uh, there's an attendance booklet. If you would fill that out and uh, check the appropriate box on there, give us your name, address, and, and especially if you'd like to, uh, to receive our email newsletter that comes out uh, every Thursday. Uh, please put your email address on there, and that's a great way to keep up with the activities of here at Community Baptist Church. Um, we have a number of things that are coming up, so let me kind of uh, run through those with you this morning. We have just finished a great retreat this weekend, our Dawnings Retreat, uh, led by Dr. Harry Rowland. I'll introduce him in a few moments, uh, but it was a great time for those who, who came and participated in that, and we're looking forward to good things happening as a result of that in the future. Uh, but we're not done retreating for the month because next month or next week we will be having a spiritual retreat over at St. Margaret's Chapel on Watson Boulevard. I'm sorry, Watson Lane. So y'all got me messed up here. You calling it a road, an avenue, a boulevard. It's Watson Lane. You know where it is down here. Uh, and that will be next Saturday. Uh, Dr. Glenn Henson, who is a uh, uh, preeminent uh, Baptist scholar and, and spiritual guru, so to speak, will be here to lead us in, in some, uh, some spiritual exercises and, and retreat. So that will be next week. Uh, we'll be beginning about 9 in the morning and finish about 4 in the afternoon with lunch included. Also, we have some things that are coming up. Uh, we're, we're having an in-town mission trip on May the 27th through 30th, and we're going to be doing some projects here in town to help, uh, help some people out. Um, so we need two things from you. For one thing, we need you to volunteer to help be a part of this. And secondly, if you know of somebody who needs a helping hand, maybe they need uh, um, a garage painted or, or some, some leaves raked up or, or, or some gutters cleaned out or something like that, anything like that, anybody who needs that, uh, and, and here's the proviso that you can't do it yourself. <laughs> if you can do it yourself, you do it. <laughs> But if, but if you know of somebody who can't do it themselves, let us know, because that's the kind of thing that we want to do. We want to help people out there. So please give us a call here at the church, and, and we'll put them on the list and see what we can do to, to help these people out. Uh, we'll also be um, serving lunch at the Salvation Army on March the 31st, and so May, it, May 31st. Sorry, folks, it's been one of those weeks. <laughs> So that's May 31st. See you? Uh, actually, I'm going to be out of town. Jika. Jika. All right. See Jika if you'd like to volunteer to, to serve lunch at the Salvation Army on May the 31st. On uh, June the 8th, or is it July the 8th? <laughs> I know you'll tell me if I'm wrong. On June the 8th is the beginning of our extreme build um, uh, that's over in McCreary County, and so if you'd like to volunteer for that, there's a sign-up sheet on the table as you leave there. It's a great ministry, and it's amazing. It really is, because we go over there on Sunday afternoon, and, uh, and there's usually 
a foundation to the house. And by the next Saturday, we're handing the keys to a new house to, a, to their owners. And uh, it is, it's amazing that we can put a house together in one week's time. And, uh, but it happens. Um, that same week, we're going to be having Vacation Bible School. And as we have done for a number of years now, we are collaborating with St. Paul's Episcopal Church and First Christian Church and uh, the Henderson Presbyterian Church. And we move it around from church to church. This year, the uh, site for Vacation Bible School will be at the Henderson Presbyterian Church. And so if you'd like to uh, uh, volunteer for that, see Mary, and she'll sign you up. I, we could use some volunteers, couldn't we? Okay, all right. And, and one other thing, um, we will be receiving a love offering at the end of the service. Uh, I think Doris and somebody will be here at the doors to receive a love offering. Uh, to cover the expenses of our dawnings retreat this week, That's, this was not budgeted, and uh, so, but we need to cover the expenses of, of that. So if you could give generously to that, we would certainly appreciate it. And, uh, um, and um, so there you go. Let's see here. There's, there's one other thing. What, what is that? Um, what, is it a special day today? It's Mother's Day, isn't it? It's Mother's Day. All right. Mother's. We, we appreciate you so much. You, you are the love of our lives, and what would we be without you? And, and mother figures, those of you who uh, uh, are figures to mothers, I mean figures to, to an and, and influence on children, uh, teachers, and, and um, we are just so grateful for, for all that you do. Um, so grateful that we're just... Making noises. <laughs> but we're just so grateful for all that you do, and we want to express our love for you. So if mothers, if, if you are able, could you stand and let us honor you and recognize you? Um, uh, if, if you're able, if not, we will recognize you. With... Thank you so much. And... and we want to uh, offer you something really special. Mother's Day is such a, a special, emotional day. Um, and uh, so we want to offer you a little special video today. And, and it's one of those things that might bring a tear to your eyes, but so be it. Let's see the video, guys. Hey, what you think? Diaper bag, Check. spit bag, Check. 
Thank you, moms. You do it all. Let's stand and greet each other in the name of the Lord.
Well, we've come to a uh, very special part of our program today, and that is uh, baby dedication. This is one of my favorite things to do. You know, this is such a such a wonderful, wonderful event. Uh, the dedication of a child to God is a very important. It's a sacred and, and a holy event because dedication involves not only a, a child, but also the parents and the extended family and the church as well. Uh, parents, we rejoice with you. And if you want to come on forward, parents, with your children, come on, do that while I'm setting this up. Uh, parents, we, we rejoice with you. Uh, because these dear children have come into your hearts and your home, and there is no gift that, of God that's more precious and more filled with promise and blessing than the coming of, of children into your homes. Um, yet, with these blessings, there are also tremendous responsibilities for you parents. Um, into your care, God has entrusted this, these souls uh, whose destiny will be determined to a large extent by the character and the influence that you provide in your homes. And so we admonish you to guard your home well in Christ. But in this service of dedication, we, your church, uh, are also making a commitment. Because we know that being a parent is not easy. And you should not feel that you're alone in your endeavor, uh, the affirmation and the support that your church family can can be uh, uh, is of great help and encouragement to you, or should be of great help and, encur and encouragement to you. And for this reason, our church places a great importance on a dedication uh, of a child to God and, and to you parents as well. In a service of dedication, the church recognizes and acknowledges the the dual responsibilities that it shares with the, a child's parents in shaping your child's character. And this commitment service should also reflect the church's attitude towards families and uh, communicate its intention and its desire to support and encourage and love and nurture you as parents and as children.
Thank you. These are uh, their children, but they are our children as well, aren't they? And, uh, and we celebrate their birth, we celebrate their dedication, and we celebrate their lives and you as parents. And so let us, uh, I hope everyone has been handed a, a sheet uh, for our baby dedication. We'll go through our baby dedication liturgy now. Parents, do you desire earnestly that your child grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? As parents, do you covenant together with God to bring up your child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to assist him or her in growing as did Jesus in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and humanity? Because... You desire for your child a knowledge of the scriptures and a loving, respectful attitude towards God and God's Son, Jesus Christ. Do you promise to use your home and the organization of the church to accomplish this task? Recognizing the responsibility that you, the church, that you have as a congregation towards each child, do you agree to love and to protect them? seeking always to manifest toward them a Christian spirit? Do you promise that by giving your time, talent, and money, you will do your part and help provide spiritual instruction and Christian training? If you accept this responsibility, will you indicate it by standing if you are able? We, the church, pledge to commit ourselves to nurture these parents and their children, to provide opportunities for training and growth in parenting and family enrichment, and to offer them our support and our loving concern. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for all that you do in our lives, and we thank you especially for the blessings of these children and their parents. We pray for them and pray a very special blessing upon them. We celebrate their lives, and we are thankful that they are a part of our lives. And we pray that, uh, that you will just lift them up, train them along the way in your spirit and in your truth, that they may be the Christian men and women that you want them to be when they grow up. Be with these parents as they lead them, O oh God, and be with this church as we offer support and encouragement and love to them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's remain standing for a hymn.
Today's scripture reading is going to be out of Acts 17, 1 through 6. After Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, This is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of them leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some ruffians in the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out, the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. Thank you. 
Stand and sing hymn number 538.
please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to gather in this place today. We are so blessed, Lord. You don't give us what we deserve, but you give us what we don't deserve. We are so thankful for all of our mothers, grandmothers, aunts, sisters, and all of our motherly figures, Lord. Bless these tithes and offerings to do your work, and be with Harry as he delivers our sermon today, and speak through him. In your name I pray, amen.
Thank you, Daryl and Enda. It's always a joy to, to listen to you sing. It's a blessing. I'd like to introduce our uh, speaker for today, our preacher for today, Dr. Harry Rowland. Uh, Harry is the director of missional congregations for the uh, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Uh, his office is in Atlanta, and his responsibilities there are to, to help congregations like ours to become missional. And I think our, our congregation is a very missional congreg- congregation, a church uh, that's missional is a church where members use their gifts and their resources to reach out uh, to the local community and, and, uh, and around the world. Uh, he's been with us all weekend, uh, leading us with a, through a dawning's retreat, and we have had a wonderful time of fellowship and introspection and, uh, and study. And we look forward to getting our dawning's process of discernment underway very soon and, and see where God will lead us uh, through this process. Harry's a graduate of Baylor University, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and New Orleans Baptist Sem- Seminary. Uh, he's also pastor of churches in South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and here in Kentucky. So let's welcome Harry Rowland. Thank you. 
It is great, great to be with you. I uh, enjoy getting to know some from your congregation at a Dawning's retreat that I was helping lead with about 14, 16 churches in Georgetown several months ago. I do lose track of time. Uh, and that was a, just a wonderful opportunity. And then from then, had some conversations with your pastor along the way. And, and, uh, and we worked out to kind of come and, and talk about it a bit more fully uh, this weekend. And it's been a, been a joy. It does rain here, I noticed, in Kentucky to do that. And it rains in different directions. I mean, uh, all times here at times. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, today's a uh, worship sermon, even on a Mother's Day, you feel a little bit uh, disjointed in that because it's always a wonderful time just to celebrate the, uh, the gift of those who are willing to nurture others, be it in their Christian faith or certainly in their lifestyle. And uh, at the same time, we, we're here to talk about what it means to be a part of a church, as Tim has said, that is a missional church and what God's doing. Um, I love church. I really do. I didn't grow up in a Christian family, never stepped foot into a church. I was 18 years of age, though I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. <clears throat> we didn't have anything against God. We just didn't give him the time of day, basically. And, but once I came to church and started listening and understanding that, uh, that there was a meaning to life outside just myself, uh, I fell in love with the church, for the people of the church who reached out and nurtured me, who, who prayed and guided, uh, for certainly the Savior whom I met there and, and helped shape my life in different fashions. So I do, I love church. Say it with me. I love church. I do like, you know, um, dialogue in this. It keeps people awake in this. So, but uh, say it one more time. I love church. Yeah, you're getting where you mean that. I had a wonderful friend named Reverend Manuel Scott, an African-American pastor, uh, grew up in central Texas. I enjoy when I have a chance to preach at some African-American churches because they use my whole name, the Reverend Dr. Harry Manning Rowland, Jr. It takes, takes two lines on a church worship bulletin, but it sure sounds nice when you introduce Reverend Dr. You know, Harry Manning Rowland, Jr. Uh, and uh, so he was a Reverend Dr. Manuel E. Scott. He never told me what the E stood for, the third, actually. And uh, we, were, we were flying out from Dallas for a preaching conference. We had both been asked to speak out west, and we're sitting by each other on the plane going. There's about 20 pastors have been asked to come and do a preaching conference. I don't know. I hope they didn't pay a whole lot of money to go to that. But anyhow, we, uh, we were there, and it was a wonderful experience. And we're sitting on the airplane, and Reverend Dr. Manuel E. Scott III asked me, and he said, Reverend Dr. Harry Manning Rowland, Jr., um, do you know what the difference is between you Anglo preachers and us African-American preachers? And I had some things I could say, but it was safer just to say no. And uh, he said... And he said, well, you know, we both have God's inspiration and we both have the Spirit's revelation and we both have the, the, uh, Jesus' illumination. But he says, we have imagination. And he rolled his eyes. And then whoever it was that put that preaching conference together had me preaching after the Reverend Dr. Manuel E. Scott III, and which was not an envious place with which to be as I listened to his wonderful imagination. But he began that sermon that evening by shouting, I love church. And he shouted it so loudly that we all about felt our heart palpitate. But say it one more time with me. I love church. And then he began by telling a story of growing up in central Texas, the one of seven children in a sharecropping family. Barely enough food to feed them, just hand to mouth, certainly a lot of love from their mothers, from their extended family that was there, their father, as they sought to make it. 
And he spoke about how they did not often have dessert in their home, uh, except maybe on a birthday or, you know, or Christmas or something like that. Their mother may gather enough funds with which to bake some type of cake dessert. I grew up in the city. I'm kind of an urbanite in that fashion, in downtown areas like Nashville and Dallas and Paris and other places like that. Um, I, you know, and so I was a bit ignorant about that. I know I went to a church one time for uh, do an interim, and they were going to do a pounding. I felt that was an awful lot like stoning I'd read about in Scripture and was a little bit hesitant about that. Uh, then I found out it meant they gave you stuff. And then I got a call and said, did you find the, the, the canned goods on the back step? And I said, no, but somebody left a jar full of a bunch of stuff. Just a jars full of stuff out there to do that. I didn't know canning came in glass jars. But anyhow, Manuel Scott came and uh, he spoke about how his mother would come to bake this cake. And evidently was something used to be able to go to the stores and buy this stuff called scratch. I don't think they sell it anymore, but everybody used to make, make stuff from scratch. Anyhow, she'd go and buy her scratch from the store, and she would mix it together and stir it up, and she would go to make this cake. He said that they didn't have enough funds that if the cake did not rise properly, taste the way that it needed to, just to begin again. So his mother would bake what he called a test cake. And in my mind's eye, I pictured like a little cupcake tin that she would put that batter in, place it within the oven, allow it to bake. And then she would take out that test cake and taste, test it to make sure it rose properly, make sure it tasted the way that she wanted it to taste. And then if so, great. If not, I guess you add some more scratch to it and stir it up and try again to do that. So he, so he would say after his mother had prepared that test cake and, and made sure it was just the way that she liked it, what do you think happened to the rest of that test cake? Seven children, kitchen, warm cake. Whichever child was closest to her in the kitchen got to polish off the rest of that test cake. And he said the times when it was his opportunity, he was given the opportunity to finish that test cake. He said, do you think that just satisfied his appetite? Do you think that just, oh, that's the greatest thing there ever is. I don't need any other cake for the rest of my life. No, all it did, all it did was prepare him with a sense of expectation, anticipation for that big cake that was going to be on the dining room table that evening. Maybe a several layer scratch cake with scratch icing and scratch candles on it. I don't know. But there's just that huge cake that was there. He would it just prepared him with a sense of anticipation and expectation for that big cake. And then he said, I love church because church, when church is done well, is like that test cake. It's not perfect. It's not all it is. But it gives us a taste of heaven. Church, when it's done well, gives us a taste of heaven. It prepares us for it with a sense of anticipation and expectation for that day when we will be reunited with Christ and reunited with others who are there. When God does redeem this world to himself. We come with that sense of anticipation because we live in a world that needs a taste of heaven, do we not? We, we live in a world that needs a taste of what love truly is. We live in a world that needs a taste of what true joy is all about. We live in a world that needs a taste, a huge taste of grace and forgiveness. Do we not live in a world that needs peace? Certainly inner peace, but we need global peace as never before. We live in a world that needs to understand what true justice is, and it's not always about us. Our world in so many areas lives or needs a taste of heaven. 
And church, when church is done well, isn't all itself, there's no perfect church and neither you, well, maybe you, but at least not me, could ever be a member there. But it does give us a taste of heaven. So Manuel Scott would say, I love church. Say it with me. I love church. Because when God's church is done God's way, this world receives a taste of heaven that it so badly, so badly needs. So much of my opportunity is to visit churches like Community Baptist Church. Churches who desire to give this world this community of taste of heaven. And out of that, I've come to kind of noodle over what, what is a right uh, Today's sermon I call just a right-side-up church in an upside-down world. And when I speak about an upside-down world, I'm not railing against culture. God created this world and said, this, this place is good. He said, this world is good, and we need to be good stewards of this world. And there's a lot of good that's out there, and it doesn't do us any good just to rail about it. But we are called to invest ourselves in it. We are called to embrace the beauty that is around us. But at the same time, we understand there are places of darkness in this world. There are places that this world is upside down. There's more slavery or human trafficking now in the 21st century than we've ever experienced in our world today. And Many of you are following what's happening in, in Africa and other places around the world. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We, we, we are dealing with many places where there's not uh, justice. 47 million Americans live on food scarcity in the world today, and two-thirds of them are children, and that's in our own country. We live in a world that, that has some dark places in that. We live in a place, indeed, where justice is not always true, and, and uh, there's greed and selfishness, and there's lies, and there's cheating. We live in a world where people are abused and taken advantage of and do not have a voice. We live in a world where we have, I think they last count, Two weeks ago, I counted up. We have, you know, they don't call them wars anymore, just like conflicts or something. 32, quote, wars or conflicts happening right now in the world, and we probably just hear about six or seven of them. We live in a world where there's still some dark places in the world, and that places that still need to have that taste of heaven that the church can truly give. So what does that look like? If there are places in our world that there's these dark places, these upside-down places, what would a right-side-up church look like? And I, received, I chose this title because of that passage of Scripture that we read that was read for us just a few moments ago. When Paul and Silas had entered Thessalonica and had shared a little taste of heaven, they kind of shared some hope and joy. They'd uh, done some justice issues with a young lady who was prophesying in Philippi, got him kicked out of Philippi. They'd come and spoken about another God that caused some economic turmoil in Thessalonica. And so their assault and their accusation is these people have come and turned the world upside down. Or we might rather say right side up. So what does it take if we're going to be accused? And would it not, if we're going to be accused of something, and I promise... You know, I've been a pastor for 25 years, so I've been accused of a lot of things. And some of them I wasn't even guilty of. But anyhow, most of them I hopefully weren't. But if we're going to be accused of something, would it not be to be accused of turning the world right side up, upside down, whichever way you want to put that? So what does a church look like that's willing to be a right side up church in an upside down world? These are just my musings, not exhaustive. But I think that a... a church, a right-side-up church in an upside-down world needs to be a disturbed church. So isn't that a great invitation? Tim stands up here. Come join Community Baptist Church. We're a disturbed church.
That's really a church growth um, motto. That's going to just pack them in. Oh, oh, our world knows. Our world knows that too often what they know about Christians is that we're just upset. You know, tragically, what's portrayed is a lot about churches and Christians from TV preachers, 25 character tweets out there, or things that are railing against it. Oh, they know we're upset about certain types of prayers or taxes or raising in gas or elections. Oh, they know we're upset about a bunch of stuff. But that's not the type of disturbed I'm speaking of. I'm talking about we need to be disturbed about the stuff that disturbed the heart of God. We need to be disturbed about the stuff that Jesus Christ died on the cross about. Let me tell you, a lot of the stuff you see out there that a bunch of Christians are disturbed about, Jesus did not die on the cross about. We need to be disturbed about that human justice, and we need to be disturbed about people being abused, the marginalized, the oppressed, the fearful. Isn't that not where Jesus lived his life? Isn't that what put him on the cross as he went with the outcast and, and shared? Does he not concerned about those who, uh, did he not have a heartbeat about those who are in poverty or hunger or dealing with AIDS or human trafficking or injustice or marginalized or illiterate or homeless and economic oppression? Did he not concerned about those who are the widows and the orphans and the scared and the hopeless? Jesus Christ wept over Jerusalem. But he didn't weep over the things that we're told that we need to be disturbed about so often out in our culture. Oh, we need to be disturbed, but we need to be disturbed about the things that really do disturb the heart of God. I shared in uh, your Dawning's group how when I was pastoring really up in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, in the greatest Cincinnati area, and was doing, at that time, um, planning for a church the way I had been taught, predict, plan, Event, invent something and then try to get people to buy into it. You know, my job, we would get together, ask God's blessing on that. We predicted what needed to happen out there in the community, what we need to do to help the church be relevant. Then we tried to plan to meet those predictions. Then we invented something, a, a motto, a slogan, a theme. And then my job was to go out there and sell it. At least get people to, to move from doing this to just surrendering and giving up and saying, okay, you know, you're worn us down, we'll do it. You know, that was kind of the job. And that wears you out after a number of years. Bill Whitehead, who was the vice president of Procter & Gamble, was a member of the church, and he kindly told me one Sunday after one of these meetings, he asked me the question, he said, Harry, do you know how, many, uh, how long Procter & Gamble's PMP models are, predicting and planning models are? And I said, well, Bill, y'all are a global company. I said, I'm sure you got 5, 10, 15 years predicting and planning models out there. And this has been about 20 years ago. He said, nine months. I said, why nine months? He said, you can't trust your predictions. The world moves so fast. He said, you have to come, we have to come back every nine months and relook at what we're doing to see if it still fits because this world moves so fast. I shared that story in Greensboro, North Carolina about three months ago. And the president of Krispy Kreme was at a leadership seminar I was asked to lead. And he said, we do, it every, we do it every 90 days for Krispy Kreme Donuts to look back and come every 90 days. What's it looking like? What we're going on? He said, we, if you waited a year, you may, you may have lost your business to relook at what you're doing. And so when Bill Whitehead told me that, I said, well, gracious. That kind of just beats up everything I've been taught to do and been doing for all these years. So I 
I was going to go prove him wrong. I said, Jesus got his disciples together. So I went and I looked, and I, could, I was going to go find what Jesus got his disciples together. And Jesus said, okay, guys and gals, who's going to be the next emperor of Rome? And how many young families are moving into Jerusalem? And what's the interest rate of the shekel going to be? And how much is camel fuel going to cost? And we're going to do these predictions, and, and then we're going to plan this ministry, and then we're going to send you out, and you're going to get people to buy into it. And gracious, unless you have a different Bible than do I, I don't see that. But it'd see him gathering his people together, but it wasn't to predict, plan, invent, and try to sell something. He got them together to pray. To pray. To slow down, to put themselves in the presence of God where they could pray. And as they prayed, they went with an attitude of preparing to say yes to wherever God was leading and wherever God was working. And when they did that, slowed down, created space for the Spirit of God to work, prepared to say yes to wherever God was engaged, then they didn't have to invent something. They discovered. They discovered that next step in their missional journey, the next step they needed to take. And as they engaged in that next step, God continued to direct them. They allowed the mission of God to shape them rather than doing what I did so often. I had a church-shaped mission. I kind of shaped it myself and asked God to bless it rather than letting the mission of God shape the church. But I tell you, you better be worried when you get down there and you start praying and you prepare to say yes and you create for the Spirit to work. You're going to find yourself disturbed. But it's going to be about the things that disturb the heart of God. And you're going to find yourself an opportunity to make a difference. But it's going to be a little bit messy. But a church that can give this world a taste of heaven is a church that is disturbed. Working with a new church start down in Shreveport, Louisiana, called the Church of the Highlands. Moved into an area that was fairly economically depressed. I went and spent about two or three weeks with them as we kind of learned the community together and what was there and had them walk through the community. And they understood that in that community there was a lot of economic depression and a lot of it was because of a lot of predatory lending institutions and things that were taking place there that were causing things with four or five, six hundred percent interest rates that were keeping people in debt forever and ever. And they didn't know what to do about that. And they realized that so many people had jobs but, or, had, uh, had, or had money coming in from places. But so many of that, even if you work for like Kelly or some places, you're, if you don't have a bank account, they kind of give you a little ATM card and your checks on that. And you can slide that in and receive money back. But if you don't have a bank account, there's 5 or $6 for every time you make a transaction in that. And then you don't want to take out your whole paycheck. So it's $20 here plus 5 to them, $20 here plus 5 to them, $20 here plus 5 to them. And they're eating up your checking to do that. Well, the church just decided they were going to put an ATM machine in the wall of their church and charge 50 cents to help folks do that. They had people trained tax accountants that they had income tax coming back. Instead of paying 30 and 40 percent to receive money they'd already earned back, they would have people trained that would help them receive their money back. I went back about a year later to do a celebration and walk through the neighborhood and just in my ignorance, and that's an easy thing for me to do, just to walk around looking ignorant. So it really works well when I'm going in through communities. And I would just say, is there some church around here? And they would say, at this time, they would say, I don't know the name of it, but there's a church up here that really does help people. We need, if you really want to be a right-side-up church in this upside-down world, we need to be willing to be disturbed. But so help us, we better be disturbed about the things that put Jesus Christ on the cross. So I love church. Say it with me. I love church, especially when it's disturbed. But I also love church when it's shattered. So come join Community Baptist Church. We're disturbed and shattered church. You're not going to find too many church growth books written on both of those, either one of those topics as well. 
And when I speak about being shattered, I mean that we need to, we need to be genuine. We need to be real. I've read a lot about the millennials and the postmodern age. I think I understand some of that. I probably don't understand as much of that as I think I might, and I know there's some I don't understand. But a couple of things I do take away that I do believe are true is that this millennial or this postmodern age, they are tired of things that are fake. They are tired of things that just look fat, flashy, and are said to be big. They're looking for relationships. They're looking for things that are real. They're looking for things that are genuine and authentic. And I think that the church ought to be able to be that. They ought to provide relationship, and they ought to be real, authentic, and genuine. You want to have people worship God? Don't try to do what California necessarily has done. You be authentic to who you are. We need to be real. We need to be transparent. We all come with, with bruises and cuts and shapes and rough edges out there. And were it not for the grace of God, where would any of us be? But we come here and we place ourselves in the hand of Christ and then together we can become more than we could ever be if we're willing to admit that we're shattered. Some of the most beautiful artwork in all the world for centuries were stained glass windows. And I'm not necessarily speaking of the ones that are more manufactured today, but those that were more artisan stained glass windows that you see. And the bit of history that I know about that is certainly the artist would take pieces of broken glass, shards of glass, sharp edges, rough edges, uh, non-shapes. And this artist would take it with this lead beading and he would place this, this shattered glass with this lead beading and create something beautiful, some, maybe some biblical portrait. And then they would place it in the window. And when the light shined through that, you had some of the most beautiful artwork our world has ever known made up of shattered, broken pieces of glass that in the hand of an artist, the hand of a master, became something so great. I think that's the picture of what the church ought to be. We ought to be able to come and say, yes, we are shattered, and we don't have to pretend like we have it all together or that we have it all figured out or that, oh, yeah, look at me. And we come with our sharpness and our roughness and our broken edges and we say, but we are here to join with one another, to place ourselves in the hand of Christ that he can make something of us that we cannot ever imagine but would give this world a taste of heaven that it needs. So I love church. Say it with me. I love church, especially when it's disturbed and when it's real enough to say we're shattered. I do love church. And I love church when it's clumsy. So come join Community Baptist Church. We're disturbed, shattered, and clumsy church. When I speak of being clumsy, I mean that we, we're willing to trust God courageously as we move forward. If we wait till we think we have it figured out, we've missed the boat. Because i got a feeling we're never going to have it figured out. You know that... that Paul and Silas' story that was read for you as a portion of Scripture, the portion of that that was ahead of that uh, in chapter 16 shows Paul and Silas at the church in Antioch. Uh, they just had this debate in Acts chapter 15 about how the, the Gentile Christians and the uh, Jewish Christians would kind of relate to one another. Paul and Barnabas had a bit of a falling out. Paul says, I'm going to take Silas and Silas and Paul on what we know is the second missionary journey. We're going to go back to the churches in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, go back there and strengthen and revisit those churches and strengthen them. And I can almost see in my mind's eye going to First Baptist Church of Antioch. There really wasn't a Baptist church. I don't want to confuse you. The first church of Antioch that was there. They would go back to the first church there, and they had a business meeting. And Paul and Silas says, we're going to go back and strengthen the churches in Asia Minor. And I would, I would have voted for it. I probably would have come and laid hands on Saul and Barnabas and commissioned them to go out and do that 
missionary journey. In chapter 16, we see how they headed up to there. And then we see in chapter 16 twice, and some will even read a third time in the Greek, that says the Holy Spirit forbade them from going into Asia Minor. Interesting passage. You ought to read it. Holy Spirit stopped them, forbade them. I can see Paul saying, oh, God, you got it wrong. The church in Antioch, business meeting, you know, 100% acclamation. This is where we're going. You need to go check the business meetings minutes, you know. This is what we're supposed to do. Two to three times the Spirit stopped them. And then in Acts chapter 16, 15, Paul in a vision had a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And instead of taking a right in Asia Minor, Paul felt the Spirit leading him to take a left, crossed over into to the European campaign, landed at a place called Philippi. Well, gracious, there weren't enough Jewish men to have a synagogue, so he had to worship with these women by the river. And the first European church was with Lydia and a bunch of her lady friends that were there. And we're all a part of, the, most of us are descendants of that European-type church that took place there. And in Philippi, is sharing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and a lady who was being uh, used to make money for another person because she evidently could prophesy in some fashion or predict something and was basically being used to make profit, called out to Paul, and Paul healed her, which got him in trouble um, because, you know, it's a little economic stuff always seems to get you in trouble. Got him in trouble, and Paul and Silas were tossed in the jail. Now, this is really a great plan for church planting, don't you think? Uh, for Go against what was voted in church business meeting. Go a different direction. Start churches with a bunch of European women, heal somebody, get tossed in the jail. I mean, this is this is this is this is this is planned out well. This this journey is planned out well. They must have been singers like I am, pretty bad singers. For as they sung in jail, they caused an earthquake. The whole place shook up. Criminals running out, but instead of running out, they want to know what in the world Paul and Silas were speaking of. It got so hot, they got sent to Thessalonica and did the same thing again and got told they're turning the world upside down. Now, if you ask me, that's a pretty clumsy trip. Wasn't Paul and Silas thought they had a plan? We've already been this way before. Let's just go and strengthen these churches. But when he prayed... He felt God saying no to this and yes to this. And there wasn't a playbook for this. There was for that. But they were prepared to say yes to wherever God led. And the world was turned upside down. God works in clumsy fashions. I shared this story with Sam yesterday. It was a a number of years ago, I was asked to go to Kazakhstan to write religious freedom documents for Kazakhstan. My background was, was pre-law and then ministry. I had a friend in Kazakhstan who, when, when the Iron Curtain was coming down, um, the president of Kazakhstan, he's still the president of Kazakhstan, realized that his people were going to have to enter into more of a global world. So they, he asked if he could somehow get some uh, uh, U.S. educators, U.S. business people, and U.S. medical folks to come to Kazakhstan to talk with their counterparts, their Kazakh educators, business individuals, and medical people. So he called me and said, do you think you could do this? I was at a church in Nashville at the time. I said yes. So I recruited 20 business leaders, 20 medical folks, and 20 
um, educators, medical, and business folks to go. And then he asked, he said, well, what they would like you to do would be to write a religious freedom document that he understands that he's going to have to give places of worship back to all these different religious groups that were there. But he's watched what's happened in other parts of the world that about the time they all can have freedom of worship, then they start fighting each other. And so then they, you know, so he says that he didn't want this type of unrest in this country. So he said, well, you meet with the Islamic leader, will you meet with the Russian Orthodox leader, will you meet with the, the uh, Protestant leaders, will you meet with those five different religious groups that I was to meet with, with their heads. And we were supposed to somehow craft a document that would be signed by all of us and the president of Kazakhstan, saying basically that if we, these are things we agree to, that if we have our places of worship at, that we respect each other and we won't throw stones at one another. And so that was my job over for about a month. So as a young minister, you know, you can have these visions of grandeur, you know, Harry Rowland, Time Magazine, religious freedom author. You know, you can have these, these uh, visions of grandeur at times. You try to press them down. Uh, so anyhow, we're going over there to do this trip. I fly to JFK, get on this plane called Aeroflot. I think it was Aeroflot. They didn't care whether it floated or stayed in the air or not. Um, got there. My flew to Kazakhstan for a month. My luggage flew to Kansas City for five weeks. Um, and I've traveled enough that I usually have one extra pair of clothes in my backpack with me, and just in case it is delayed, which has happened on occasion, but this is the one and only time in all my travels that it has never not made it. And so I landed there after a couple of days, um, it not coming, I was needing some additional clothes. I'm 6'5", the average Kazakh is 5'6". I walked into the store. The four things to be sold would fit a five-six person. I could have started the style for men's crop pants, I think, if I had actually brought those things. But there wasn't anything that, that, that fit. So basically, I was left to my own devices. I took my. I was told that the lady on the 13th floor of the Almata Hotel who brought me breakfast would also wash my clothes. So I took what I wasn't wearing one evening, walked into her, and in my best Russian, and you know how us Americans are, our best Russians are just loud, slow English. Will you wash my clothes? And if they don't, you just speak more slowly and loudly, and surely this time they will understand you. Uh, and, and so in my best Russian, my loud, slow English, I asked if she might wash my clothes. And in her best English, which is even louder and much faster Russian, I think she said she would be happy to and would have them back for me that evening. And I said, thank you which I didn't know how to say in Russian at that time, and headed off for my day. That evening I did came back in my room, and lo and behold, uh, my clothes were washed and folded and laid out on my bed, but not only my clothes, but it was like the fishes and loaves. The clothes had multiplied. There were additional clothes on my bed. Unfortunately, when I held them up, they belonged to some five-foot-six Cossack. Not mine. So anyhow, I had to fold them back up, and I walked back into the ladies' wash area, and I thanked her for washing my clothes and handed her back the clothes that were not mine and went on back to my room. The next night, about 11 o'clock at night, when she came on duty, I'm just laying there in my shorts, just cooling down after a day. There's a knock on the door. She comes on in with the key. Everybody had a key to your room in, in Soviet Union at that time. I'm not even sure why they gave me one. But anyhow, they, she came on into my room and stood there and motioned for me to come. I got up, walked over, put on my pants, put on my shirt, went to follow her out. I told me I had to go back and put on my shoes, so I went back and put on my shoes. And then she, we walked around to her little area. So I with her little hot plate where she made the tea and washer and dryer and the ironing board. And we're, pretend, we're talking in Russian and English, pretending like we understand each other and smiling and all that you do in different countries and, and having this wonderful conversation. And uh, then about 20 minutes later, I'm escorted back to my room and go to bed. 
The next night, about 11 o'clock at night, there's a knock on my door. She comes in. I get up, put my pants on, put my shirt on, put on my shoes this time. And we go around, and she's taking me to other people's rooms. She's got a key to everybody's room, but she's taking me to other people's rooms, and we're looking around their rooms. And, um, you know, about 30 minutes or so, we're back in my room. The next night, I'm sitting there at 11 o'clock. I'm dressed. I figure we're going somewhere that night. Sure enough, she comes in, and, and we go around for the second night and look at people's rooms again. Well, after three nights of this, I tell the interpreter who's with me, I said, you're going to have to stay with me till this lady comes on duty, and we're going to have to get to the bottom of this, of what, you know, all these, these late evening tours. And so I told him basically this type of story, most of that. She comes in, sure enough, and they enter into dialogue together. After a moment, he turns to me and he says, do you have all your clothes? And I said, yeah, it's not much. My luggage is in, I didn't know Kansas City at the time. My luggage hasn't shown up. Uh, it's all I have. And he, they conversed back. And then, then he said, uh, so you're not missing anything? And I said, no. And then he conversed again. And then this Russian lady just began to cry. And he turned to me. And what had happened, evidently, when she had brought me back clothes that weren't mine, I had taken them back. She thought she had swapped clothes out that she had given me somebody else's clothes and that somebody else, and had given somebody else my clothes. And she was seeing me picked up by a government limousine and on TV every day. And, and these tours were me looking for what she thought were my lost clothes because she was scared that she had lost, was going to lose her job, that she had lost my clothes and just swapped them out, giving them to the wrong person. And so I was supposed to be looking for my clothes, which weren't, I didn't have any more that weren't there. And when she found out she wasn't going to lose her job, she hadn't, uh, swapped out my clothes in a wrong fashion. She broke down crying and she turned and said, he's made me cry for three days. I'm sorry if I ever do that to you. It's usually not on, not on purpose. And he said, he's made me cry for three days. He owes me a Bible. She had seen the Russian Bibles we had in the windowsill that were there. We brought those in legally and they knew we were there. And, and uh, so I picked up one of the Bibles and had our interpreter write a message on that. And I signed my name and gave it to her. She grabbed me, hugged me, broke two ribs and put me back down again. And, uh, and then left uh, that day. The next night, I was sitting laying there in bed. Hang on, I'm brave enough to hang my pants back in the closet there on the armchair there. I heard the key in the door. I'm getting dressed again. Here she comes in with another wash lady from the 12th floor. And this wash lady spoke a little bit of pigeon, what we might call pigeon English, a little bit of English there. And she said, you gave her a Bible. Can I have a Bible for my children? Nobody asked for a Bible for themselves. But can I have a Bible for my children? And so I just signed my name and put a little thing in English and handed her the Bible. For the next 11 nights, my wash lady on the 13th floor brought a wash lady from every floor to, the, to, to my room at 11.30 at night to get a Bible. You know, and gosh, I don't know, I need to add the years, 25, 30 years, however, when the Iron Curtain fell, whenever that fell, because I left when Yeltsin's tanks were in Moscow is when I flew out, but however long ago that was, um, every Christmas, I get a card from two wash ladies who started two churches in Almada, Kazakhstan. Just because some clumsy American's luggage went to Kansas City rather than Kazakh, Kazakhstan. And in all my years of traveling from different countries and others, you know, I used to have a copy of that religious freedom document. But I've lost it somewhere along the way or it's in some box. I couldn't lay my hands on it if I had to. And what I thought was really God's plan and going to be my great purpose in life for life and religious freedom our document was not at all what God had in mind. 
He had something a little bit clumsy. At 11 o'clock at night, walking around a hotel because somebody thinks your clothes are lost. Handing out Bibles to wash ladies. And two churches started. Isn't that just like God? I love church. Say it with me. I love church. Especially when it's disturbed. And when it's shattered. And it's when it's willing just to clumsily follow God. As God leads. Will you say it with me? I love church. Will you kind of close your eyes? And listen. Dear God, God said, I love church too. Amen. And I have to say, Harry, that um, your description of... um, of a right-side-up church is a description I've used for this church quite often. We are disturbed <laughs> and sometimes shattered and often clumsy, but we love our church, and, um, and, uh, and I'm very proud of this church and what we do in this community and around the world. It is good, and I appreciate the, your words of um, encouragement to us. And I appreciate what you've done this weekend for us. And this begins a process of discernment where we take what we want to do for the church or want our church to do. And we rip it up and throw it away because we are looking for what God wants. And we're going to be using that process over the next number of weeks and maybe years to make this happen. So be in prayer for that. Be in prayer for that. We are going to sing our closing hymn.